the management is somehow convinced that all the work is all the success is being produced because people are following the rules and procedures and the protocols the people on the front end are doing a lot more sometimes despite sometimes against those protocols but they are not very open and they are not sharing that information why because the moment you start talking about adaptation the moment you start talking about uh, about uh, local practices there is a push from the top to say you just cannot do that you're listening to the breakdown with me chris clearfield the breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy complex world i'm your host and fellow learner and i'm glad you're here Welcome to The Breakdown. I'm your host, Chris Clearfield. Today on the show, I am delighted to introduce you to Nipin Anand, a master mariner and a safety expert that consults for companies operating in high-risk industries like shipping and oil and gas. When Nipin was 17 years old, he left home for a job on a ship. He sailed around the world, working for over 10 years as a deck officer. He achieved, he achieved the title of master mariner in 2005. After experiencing a near collision on the job, Nippon shifted the focus of his career. He returned to school and earned a master's and then a doctorate in maritime social sciences, which is honestly one of the coolest names for a doctoral program I've ever heard. Today, his background as a mariner and a scholar informs how he thinks about preventing accidents and creating safe work environments. Now, you regular listeners will already know that creating safe environments is just as much a social, interpersonal endeavor as it is a technical or engineering one. A ship or an oil rig or a train is only as safe as the workplace culture of the organization that runs it. And if you're not a safety professional, I promise that there's something in here for you also. Solving problems of safety are like solving any kind of the wicked problems in your organizations. It requires the ability to work collaboratively, to problem solve, to work with resistance, and to develop the willingness to experiment and try new things as you go along. So how can safety cultures be created? How can safe working environments be sustained? That's what we dig into on the show today. I hope you enjoy. My name is Nipin, Nipin Anand, and I'm based in in Scotland, in Aberdeen. Um, And I have been an ex-seafarer. I used to work on ships, deep sea ships, for about 11, 12 years. And then I decided to do a, a master's and then a PhD in social sciences. Uh, um, and I've worked as a safety inspector. So yeah, I've done uh, different things, but uh, now I run a company called Novella Solutions. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also find me, uh, you have my own website, nepinanan.com. So you can find me there. Great. Have you read The Idea Factory, the, the book about Bell Labs? I have heard of it, but I haven't had the chance to read it. Uh, it's good. It's worth it's worth a read. Um, uh, one of the things that's interesting about it is, you know, the way that just a secure and stable funding model meant that the kind of engineers at Bell Labs could work on, you know, a, a time frame of decades to commercialize technology instead of years or months because they just had this steady infusion of cash from AT&T and all the fees that they were collecting for providing telco services. And, and, you know, that's an example where there, there was a lot that went right at Bell Labs, but one of the big things that went right was just that they were embedded in a monopoly essentially. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. That's neither, that's neither here nor there. No, no, that's, I think that's a really good point because, you know, uh, at, at one level, you can you can criticize monopolies for for, for what they do, uh, uh, but I think there is a degree of 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 security that people feel within those monopolies. I mean, a classic example of that is most oil majors. You know, that people feel very safe, very secure working in an environment like this because it's a job for life. Right, and and you have a lot of buffer, and that buffer uh, you you. You have resources, you have buffer, you have the power to influence, and that kind of uh, creates uh, that that sense of ease uh, for people to be themselves to create. Uh, but 
Do you know what? I also find it interesting at another level that um, because we are humans and, and we like to be pushed when it comes to innovation, there has to be a good reason for us to perform. Uh, unless uh, we are pushed or we, 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 are, we are thrown into an environment that is, that is pushing us to, 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 to compete against other ideas, I think it was going to be very difficult uh, to to come up with with new thinking or disruptive ways of thinking. So that's that's the irony of it. You know, AT and T, as you very rightly said, is uh, is ha has uh, pots of money that you can play around with. Uh, innovation becomes stagnant because there is no impetus impetus there. Yeah, and what I think is interesting about AT and T is, again, I'm I'm. You know, I've read I've read one one book on this, but but what's what's interesting? The interesting story that for me emerged in that context was that AT and T's competitor was kind of it, it itself, in some sense, that what they were trying to do was roll out this massive infrastructure across the U.S. and the technology wasn't quite good enough yet and so what they were you know what they were innovating was their ability to connect and 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 monetize telephony for as many people as possible and so there really was a drive that was just connecting people and they 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 kind of there's a way in which they could have they could have stopped, but their whole reason was oriented towards kind of growing and and connecting everybody. And you know now whatever it is, seventy years later, sixty years later, I, I think it's yeah. I think it's it's interesting to to be. I'm I'm curious about that. I'm curious about um, you know if you could sort of think about the leaps that were made. Um, in the 1960s, 1970s, you know, going from a system that was at some point, you know, really like wire, I mean, circuitry based uh, to relay based and then to transistor based and, you know, to optical, like, I wonder, I wonder how the characteristics of the kind of, you know, modern wireless innovation look in comparison to that. And I, I just, I have no, I have no idea, but but it's an interesting question. You know, the 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 oil majors, I think, are are a good example of competition driving things to new frontiers too. And and I'm curious, and, and also kind of market forces. Um, and what do you what do you think about that statement? Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I'm just. I want to go back to the 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 idea that you just uh, started here. Uh, I think. Uh, you were trying to compare between uh, knowledge-based companies uh, and companies that are uh, into uh, high-risk kind of framework. Uh, so you have the oil majors and you have the, the uh, my world is more related to high-risk industries. So yep. um, uh, talk about cruise sector, uh, shipping, oil and gas, um, that kind of thing. So I think, uh, and this is where it gets very interesting because um, if you look at the concept of, for example, innovation, innovation requires, by, by its very nature, it requires uh, uh, people to, it's a, it's, a, it's a hit and trial thing, isn't it? You try something, you fail, but then, and then you, uh, you try again. Uh, and so in that sense, I think it's very unique as against high-risk systems where uh, the, the space to, 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 to think, to reflect, to make mistakes uh, does not exist as much. Yes. Um, so this is what makes high-risk systems a little bit more different when it comes to innovation as against uh, the, the knowledge-based systems like Google, Amazon, uh, the kind of systems you're talking about. And I think uh, if you want, you, because you started off with the concept of psychological safety, I think uh, this is something that we don't quite understand very well uh, in the literature around psychological safety, that what is the incentive or... or what is the flip side of giving people too much space to think, reflect, and 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 try their ideas in a high-risk system? How how conducive it is with the business model? Let's put it this way. And I think it is very different from a knowledge-based system. I would say. 
Yes. Although I I I think that there's I think that there's parallels. Um so one of the things that I've as I, as I sort of started to study complexity one of the things that I started seeing is the ways in which there are just so many forces pushing the world to be more complex and um you know since since we're talking about oil and gas i think deep water drilling is itself just a really interesting example of that um if you think about deep water horizon or if you think you know decades ago about about piper alpha i mean what happens on a macro level is that the push for more extractable resources makes people go further and further out from the kind of their comfort zone. And it also increases the complexity of the operations in a very specific way in that it increases, it decreases the visibility and it decreases the ability to to intervene in an easy way. So if you just think about a, a really, you know, sort of stupid example it's like if you compare, uh, you know, an onshore well in a very productive field, you know, if there's an issue, it's pretty easy to have people there and have them physically see what's happening and have them, you know, create, make physical interventions in real time that they can do to try and get whatever issue is, is, is problematic under control. And you compare that to something that's literally happening a mile under the ocean. You just you don't have the you know your all of your indicators of health are indirect. Uh, your ability to intervene is indirect. Um, your safety systems are very distant and indirect. And so, so I guess I I I'm not sure this is responsive to to your your point, but I think there's a way in which the innovation the kind of innovation is is um different in some sense but it's almost forced by the fact that you're pushing everybody in the industry to get to get more more complex and i think the 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 problem that i see when you're thinking when i'm thinking about this in a high reliability context is that the complexity of the problem increases much faster than the organization's ability to manage that problem because i think you know, oil majors are really generally really good at managing complicated problems, right? Problems where you need to do steps in the right order, where you need to have the right people do them at the right time, where things need to be carefully sequenced. And, you know, to, to kind of the skills that are required to manage a complex problem interconnections, lots of indirect indicators and hidden data. Those are just very different skill sets. And I guess I see that as kind of one of the the, the differences. It's, it's not a, a hard and fast thing, but psychological safety is just, it's not even just psychological safety. I, I was had just having a conversation with a client um, a little while ago, and we talked about the importance of distributing discovery and centralizing learning and and i think you know you just like you started out like the people that are closest to the problem are the ones that know the most about it but they're not the ones that have the power to influence the organization at scale but what you need to operate in a complex environment or even a very complicated environment is you need a way to empower people at the very the 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 tip of the spear to understand and make operational improvements that are then kind of like taken up by the larger organization and federated throughout. So it's like, I see it as this, you know, this kind of, um, you've just got different levels of the structure. Like you need to empower people to innovate at the local level. You need to give them feedback on the innovation to make sure they're not missing something but then you need to take that learning and distribute it and and distribute it throughout the whole the whole organizational context or the whole industry context um which i i think is 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 
even the, the, the next level up of the, of the conversation. Yeah, this is a very interesting thing you touched upon because I've spent my life thinking about it. And, uh, well, I'm just 44, but I'll just say that anyway. <laughs> I've spent my life. Um, yes, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, see, one of the things that happens in, in, in settings like what you just described is that uh, there is an awful lot of... Uh, uh, so there's a tension between... Uh, what you think you can control when what you can control. So uh, uh, if you talk about the deep water horizon, for example, you know, and, or, or many other oil rigs, uh, where you go into the deep waters with shallow water technology, thinking that you have the right infrastructure. to. to so there's a high level of uncertainty there with an illusion of regulation and control. So how does it work then? The people on the ground are constantly adapting and making things work. You're absolutely right there. Now, the problem is that because there's a disconnect between the top layer of the management and the front end, the management is somehow convinced that all the work is, all the success is being produced because people are following the rules and procedures and the protocols. The people on the front end are doing a lot more, sometimes despite, sometimes against those protocols, but they're not very open and they're not sharing that information. Why? Because the moment you start talking about adaptation, the moment you start talking about, uh, about uh, local practices, there is a push from the top to say, you just cannot do that. It's too risky. But if something goes wrong, uh, we will have difficulty uh, defending this. So, and then over a period of time, what happens is people start to follow certain practices, but the organization becomes, or at least the top layer of the management becomes oblivious to it, completely oblivious to it. And, and it do start to operate in, in, in very different kind of paradigms. So, and you almost end up in a situation where there's a disconnect between how the organization or, or the, the management thinks that success is produced and how work is actually done on the front line. So you're absolutely right. You need to empower people on the ground to constantly feed back what is happening on the floor. But you also need the management to create a culture. And this is where psychological safety becomes very interesting. To create a culture that is constantly listening to people. Yes. And, and the problem, and this goes back to the whole tension between power and knowledge, that people who are in, in a higher status, they are not used to to listening. They're not used to understanding. They're used to telling. And that, that I think, is a huge problem. I, I could not agree more. And I think it is, um, I think it is at the center of building um, adaptable, innovative, performance-driven organizations, That the, the point you just made. Uh, uh, you have ignited my mind now, so I, uh, I think it's it's interesting uh, what you're saying. Uh, the trouble is that uh, that we believe as an organization uh, that if we start to allow people to follow those 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 practices, those local practices, we will be. If something goes wrong, we will be prosecuted in the court of law. That's that's the conventional thinking. But what we don't realize is that how the legal system works. Uh, the legal system is more interested in what is happening on an everyday basis than what is documented. And that is not very difficult to understand. Uh, if, you, if you went a little bit deeper, I mean, the case in point is, 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 is the Boeing example, for example. So employees are, are constantly wanting to, to raise their concerns. They're constantly moaning, they're constantly complaining. There is an issue here. People are, are, are genuinely concerned about things. But this communication is not going anywhere. It's not being listened to. It's not being listened to because, because the management has very, uh, you know, they, they have a way of thinking, uh, which, is, which is not allowing them to, 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 to tap into this knowledge. So it's, it's keeping you away from that. So I think that's a very interesting dynamic, I believe. Yes. And um, one thing is 
people talk about psychological safety as and, and I I had a conversation with Amy Edmondson in on this podcast uh, on my podcast a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago and you know I I think one of the really interesting things about psychological safety is as it gets translated from the research to the kind of popular where it where it is now it's you know kind of a, a popular management idea it's consistently framed in well we need to get employees to speak up and it's like well actually what you need to do is you need to give managers the skills to listen better uh but what i think is interesting and and i see this i i i chatted with todd conklin a couple of weeks ago and 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 we kind of like i sort of fought like i i kind of fought with him about this a little bit um but I think in the safety community in particular, there's this word management that comes in a lot. And when the word management comes in, we, as my friends, um, uh, Jeffrey Frederick and, and, and Douglas Squirrel, who are both UK-based kind of technology software developers, but they also have a book called Agile Conversations, which is about how to have better, con- it's basically how to do humble inquiry, how to have better conversations but they talk about this idea of the bozo bit getting flipped. And it's like, well, somebody disagrees with you and you go from, if you're not careful, if you're not curious about it, your response is like, man, that person's an idiot, right? Like, God, they just don't get it. And one of the things I see in in the realm of safety is that the bit is often, the bozo bit is often, or the idiot switch is often like, mentally flipped when we talk about management, when we talk about managers. But of course, managers, you know, if you want to extend to the kind of an operational level employee, this idea of the blameless, the blameless postmortem, and they were showing up and they were doing their job with the, the best of their abilities, given the tools that they have, given the system that they were embedded in, I think you have to extend that to management as well. And then it becomes a really interesting question. Well, what are the factors in the system imperiling management's ability or manager's ability to op- operate in an effective way that supports innovation and, and dialogue and, and conversation? And I think one thing is everybody in a company feels like they are disempowered by somebody else, right? Like, like up to the CEO who feels like he has to respond to shareholder concerns in a very particular way. Um, or, you know, he has an activist on his board or she has an, you know, she, she has an activist CEO that or an activist board member that she has to deal with. Um, so, so that's, I think an interesting thing that I think we all, the, the default state of a manager is to feel at the effect of their bosses and, and the broader factors in the system. Um, is the the other thing <clears throat> that I think is really interesting is you know you get the same pressure for practical for for kind of the normalization of deviance at the management level that you do at the 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 operations level. So you know one of the 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 things that emerged from from the Deepwater investigation was um, an email from. I can't remember one of the, it was one of the drilling supervisors. Uh, he was an onshore engineer, so he wasn't on the rig and he's writing his colleagues and he's basically saying, you know, we didn't get the right shipment of some, I think it's annualizers. We didn't get the right shipment of annualizers on the rig to, to, you know, um, to, to seal the well, but, um, or to finish the well, but, but I'm sure, you know, whatever, we'll be fine. We always are. It's like sort of like, pretty close to word for word what, what he says. And, you know, nobody takes him up on that. Nobody says, no, hang on, we need to get the right things. And, you know, he's obviously responding to the production pressures that are that are kind of in the environment around him. Um, so I'm not I'm not sure where to go with that, except to say that, oh, this is what this is what I was going to say. You know, when you think about the the you just put this very, very succinctly, you know, management has not, management has been rewarded throughout their career for finding the right answer and for telling people what to do. And at some point, 
their role shifts to asking the right questions and listening. But that's a very hard shift to make, right? It's it's after a lifetime, not just of a work lifetime, but also, you know, primary school, high school, university, of being given very structured problems that have very clear answers. And, but at some point, that changes. And at some point, your job becomes to listen to the people that are closer to the problem than you and ask them questions so that they can figure out the answer. And I think that's a tremendously difficult shift to make. And I don't think most companies even conceive of things that way. And so I don't think that there's much support for managers to make that shift. Yes. Um, uh, there's so much to, to talk about here. Um, and uh, I can only add to what you're saying. Um, so, Chris, we spent, uh, I mean, for the last year and a half, uh, I have uh, been involved in a project where we are studying organizational communication. And uh, as part of this project, we, we looked into some 31,000 reports from different organizations from, yeah. And this is, uh, this is things like that go into the reporting systems like uh, uh, technical failures, uh, operational reports, uh, near misses, hazard observations, uh, all sort of uh, operational reporting systems. And one thing that clearly emerges from these reporting systems is that the drive towards seeking consensus, that we are consensus seeking animals. So people are reporting something and it's so interesting to see that the response from the top is to reinforce uh, the same thing, which is go back and comply with this. Go back and make sure that you comply with this. Make sure that this is enforced. Make sure that that uh, remind, you're reminded of doing this. Remind, ensure, comply. These are the key words you start to pick up. Now, what this tells you in the grand scheme of things is that, I don't know if you're aware that, but the term management comes from a Latin term, manus, which is to make the horse run at a particular pace. So it's all about control. Yeah. So what, what is this communication telling us that I'm not really interested in what you're saying? Go back and do as I say to you. And the person on the other hand makes one more attempt to say, but listen, this is not working. And you still respond, but go back and do this and follow this and you will be successful. So I think you're absolutely right that it's still very top down and still seems to have all the answers to the problems instead of trying to engage with the problem. So we are consensus seeing, seeking beings. The other problem, Chris, is that we are solution oriented people as professionals. Nobody gets paid for understanding the problem. When we turn up in an organization, our job is to solve problems. But we don't realize that unless we take time to understand the problem, the solutions that we come up with are never going to work. But when you wear the management hat, your job is to seek consensus and to find solutions because that's your identity. That's what you're paid for. That's where you exist. That is in direct contradiction with asking better questions and trying to understand the problem. And the, the third bit is creating a space for thinking. Yes. I mean, I've lived 29 years of my life without using the any, you know, upper part of my shoulders. Never. I was told to do something. I was big, partly because I come from a country where you don't use your brain. <laughs> the upper uh, part of your shoulders and, being your head. <laughs> yes. So so you, you, your education is such a very technocratic education. You, you mentioned the word engineers. It's in one way, it's a very pure world. You know, when I've worked with engineers for, for seven years of my life, I can tell you the, they are the purest souls. There is nothing manipulative there. It, the world is very linear. We can criticize it that it's linear, but I see it as very pure. Uh, they, they, they will speak what, what they think is the right thing to do. Uh, today, if I go down the, the engine room of a ship, uh, whatever you see in the engine room of the ship, whatever documents, procedures you see are meant for a purpose. As against, if you go on the bridge of the ship, the cockpit of the plane or, or control room, there's an awful lot of nonsense. I wouldn't say cockpit, but I would definitely say uh, a merchant ship. 
there's an awful lot of contradictory information there that can easily confuse people. And that tells you something about the purity of natural sciences, that there is there's nothing convoluted there. And I think if you put these three things together, you create a space where there is no appetite for thinking. There is no appetite for asking questions. Uh, there is a constant reinforcement of, of what the organization or what people already know. And that does not entertain novelty. That does not entertain surprise. It actually suppresses it. Yes, I want to jump in because I, 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 I hear what you're saying and I agree with it. And the thing that I just want to surface and I want to fight for is the way in which these behaviors are adaptive for the context that they come from. And and what I mean by that is I like what you're saying about the purity of the natural sciences, right? Like there is a, you know, at the end of the day, an engine is a huge machine with a bunch of physics and, and chemistry going on inside it, right? So there's a way in which that machine gives you very, very good and clear feedback on how good your, how well adapted your procedures are to it. If you don't oil it at the appropriate intervals, then it's going to break down. If you don't perform, you know, whatever, make sure your valves are well greased, they're going to get stuck. Like, there is just a physical connection with, let's just call it reality. And I think what's interesting is as you get, I mean, literally, we're talking, if we just, I love the ship metaphor. Um, well, you're not using it as a metaphor, but I'm seeing it as one. Like, as you get further away from that physicality, as you get to the bridge of the ship, now you're at a level of a higher level abstraction. As you depart the ship and go to corporate headquarters, you're at an even higher level of abstraction. As you go from headquarters to the, the regulatory office, you're at an even higher level of abstraction. And, and those higher levels of abstraction can get away with more fantasy in their work, can get away with more kind of it's it's not it's not seen as fantasy, but it's a it's a kind of disconnection with, um, yeah, it's just a disconnection with the the reality. Um, I, I was talking with somebody. It's interesting to think from to, about how this kind of well. So hold on, because I, I I want to fight for the adaptive piece here. You know, the person on the bridge most of the time is judged for not doing something that results in a catastrophe, right? So they, they're judged for being on time. They're judged for not doing something that results in a catastrophe. What else are they judged for? You tell me. This is your this is your world. Yeah, I think it, you summed it up really well. It's it's uh, it's the accuracy uh, and and the timeliness of of what you produce, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that is, you know, I think in the, in the short term, most of the time you probably don't have to pay attention to those manuals, to those procedures to be on time and, and, and safe. But in fact, some of the time, the more you cut corners, the more you'll, you'll fulfill those, you'll take those boxes where you'll be more likely to be on time, uh, and, and, and not unsafe at least. Um, so I, I guess the thing I just want to to fight for a little bit is like there is a way in which, you know, a, a bridge crew would be penalized for following the procedures as rigorously as the the group in the engineering because they're they're measured for things that those procedures aren't really designed to achieve. Um. And so that's just to say that, like, I think everybody is, like, I'll just go back to my my optimistic view of the world. Like, everybody is doing the best with the tools that they have. And, you know, those those tools aren't, um, the tools that they have, the system that they're embedded in, but we've often unintentionally designed or de built those tools to solve a different problem or designed a system that isn't really what we want it to achieve, but gets most of the way there in a, in a, in a kind of convenient way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think 
if I may say one thing here is that I think what you're trying to say is that is the degree of uncertainty uh, that you see in a nonlinear world, uh, which you know, give the example of the bridge or, or the headquarters, uh, which makes it difficult for people uh, to do things in a linear way, uh, in a linear fashion. You could get away with that linearity in the engine space because you know that the whole space is designed uh, uh, to be to behave in that in a more predictable way. But you cannot take this thinking higher up because it's more abstract, it's more uncertain, which makes it difficult. Absolutely. But I think then in that situation, what is also important is to recognize that uncertainty, acknowledge yes. that uncertainty will always be there. And more so when you have an accident and not expect people to be, to be following that linear model uh, of, of operation. And this is what happens in most accidents that we start to search for, for linearity in chaos to establish incompetence, to establish negligence, which in other words should be professionalism in, in, in normal circumstances. So to, to give you an example, uh, you know, I, I've been involved in the, the, the accident of the Costa Concordia, the passenger ship that went very close to the land. Uh, but interestingly, uh, that was not something new. That ship had been doing that on merchant ships in that or, or passenger ships in the Mediterranean Ocean or, or sea. What, that was a customary practice to do that. But the thing is that we don't recognize that until something bad happens. And this goes back to the same thing we were discussing earlier that uh, I think there is a degree of, there is a dance between ignorance, ignorance and arrogance uh, at, at one level in the organization, which gets very entrenched with the idea of linearity as predictability yes, and denies uncertainty because the very essence of an organization is to be able to control. And if you don't control, you don't exist as a manager or as a management. So we create that false sense of, of, of control uh, between ourselves and const consistently deny the reality, the, the, the messy reality. Yes. Yes. Well, and, and actually, I'll, I'll return to what you were saying about your, your communication study of, of these near miss and, and hazard reports. Um, you use the word consensus, but, but actually the word I would propose is control. Right. It's it's not about having everybody agree to things. It's it's or maybe conform. It's about having people conform to to the procedures. Um, have you read the book Mission Improbable by Lee Clark? Um, he was on my podcast a few weeks ago. Cool. I was uh, I, I was thinking about reaching out to him. I love that book and I love that work. Um I'll give maybe a, a, a 10 second summary of it from from my perspective and, and your listeners will be familiar with it if they heard Lee talk about it. But it's this idea that organizations take, do a lot of things to kind of transform this idea of uncertainty to an idea of a controlled risk. And the way that they do that, one of the ways that they do that is by writing fantastical documents that that kind of treat the the unknown as something that's knowable and controllable and and it's just a it's a really interesting i think it's a really interesting work and a really interesting way of thinking yeah yeah you're right and i think um, uh, what intrigues me is is he puts it so beautifully that the two terms organization and failure are very compatible terms organizations are bound to fail because the whole idea of rationalization uh, uh, has its limits uh, and, and, and will and, and, and at some stage is bound to fail. It's a very, very fascinating thing to think about. Yes. And I think, you know, one of the things I think about where organizations get themselves into trouble is when they push, when they, they, they give people competing beliefs and they push the the resolution of those competing beliefs um, down in the hierarchy, right? Down too low in the hierarchy. So, you know, safety and performance, right? That's a, like a, a kind of two competing beliefs um, that sometimes get pushed down in the hierarchy. Uh, or, um, you know, 
in a software development context, which is a, a space that that I get to be in some of the time, it's you know um, rolling out new products on the one hand and creating reliable, maintainable systems on the other hand. And I think the the problem or the challenge is that you often say that you want both of these things, but then you leave individual software developers or individual, you know, operators to make the compromise, to make the call in the moment on which one they're going to focus on. And and very clearly, one of them is almost overweighted, you know, drastically overweighted compared to the other. So software developers will always add features rather than go back and fix buggy code. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but we're kind of, we're in in the space. Um, And I, I think that one of the things that's, that's, I've never thought about it this way, but in a sense, we're pushing, we're doing the same thing we're doing to organizations. We're, we're doing that same thing to organizations. As a society, we both say we need goods delivered cheaply and quickly, uh, and we need, you know, a, a humane workplaces or a perfect safety record or, or whatever it is. Or, you know, we can't, um, we need petrochemicals, you know, uh, extracted as efficiently as possible. And we don't want any risk to the environment. Um, and it's like, we're just, we're kind of throughout, we're, we're sort of transforming that, those desires, which don't have to be mutually exclusive, but there's certainly a tension and we're just ignoring that tension. And so what are we doing? Well, we're, you know, create, we're opening up deepwater drilling in, in the Gulf of Mexico, and we have a weak regulator who allows fantastical safety plans to kind of tick the box of, yes, we're, we're, we're protecting the environment in a robust way. And I think there's a lot of, you know, when you say organizational failure is, is a natural thing, I couldn't agree with that more. But I think that's such a revolutionary statement. I, I think, you know, I, not to be uh, political, but but I got a lot of comfort after Joe Biden was inaugurated and made something like the following statement. Like, we're going to be honest with you about how our fight against coronavirus is going. We're going to make mistakes and we're going to mess stuff up, but we're always going to be transparent with you. And I think that I'm getting chills now just saying that because I think that there is just tremendous power in that statement. Um, and I think many industries and, and, and leaders make the mistake of not being upfront at the outset about the fact that, that, they're, that, they're, that mistakes are an inevitable part of their practice, um, whatever they're doing. Yeah, there's this, a couple of things you touched upon, Chris. Uh, I'm conscious of the time, but I will I will just add to that. Uh, I think it, uh, so. Just picking up on on the last bit, what you said, I think uh, a large part of complexity, or, or, or to understand complexity, is to make things transparent. I think the world that we live in today, we cannot afford to hide things from other people, because one is that you cannot hide a lot of things because the repercussions will show up in some way or the other. But the other thing is that most of the times when you hide things, you think that you can hide them well, but people are quite smart to understand that. People are not stupid. So what we see in many organizations is that this tendency to, to, to only share information that they think is relevant for people. But how much better if we could create a communication system that is open and transparent to everyone? Because everyone in the organization is working for the better of the organization. Then why do we have to to, to create these silos of communication? Why is it that a, a, a fire pump that is malfunctioning, only the technical department needs to know about? Why not other, other people? Why not the procurement department that can then start to prioritize their resources? That's a, that's a really powerful thing what you said just now. So I think we should think about complexity. When we think about complexity, we should also think about transparency. Yes. We should definite, and I completely agree with what you say about Joe Biden. 
I think this coronavirus has created so much mistrust or distrust with the governments because the governments are not willing to share information with the public. And and it, you know, I, I work a lot with Scandinavian people, and 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 one of the things we say is that in in, the, in Britain, uh, when the government says, uh, "Don't worry, uh, there is a there is a problem." And there is going to be some 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 issues with supplies of food for a while, but don't worry, we will manage it well. People run very quickly to the supermarket because there is no trust in the government. But you take that in the Scandinavian context and say that, listen, we have a problem, but there is no need to 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 create any sort of panic buying, and people understand that. People believe that. So I think it's a it's a very interesting thing. What do you say? I I was in Tokyo. Um... Two or three days after the uh, earthquake hit in 2011, my my then partner was living there, and uh, I was already I already had a trip to visit her, and I just kept it on. And what was amazing was, you know, in in Tokyo, following you know this major, I mean, the the kind of biggest biggest kind of possible sort of nation shaking event and you had the Fukushima reactor kind of starting its meltdown in the background and I was scared and people were scared and they were so the the amount of order was just incredible um and that's just uh there is just something cultural and something about trust in institutions and something about the way people relate that that um, is, I think, very uh, a very interesting factor in all of this stuff. Yes, absolutely. It's the right word is trust here. I mean, uh, at least. Uh, but but uh, going back to the other idea of what you were talking about, which is this constant conflict that we create, um, that you know, faster, better, cheaper, but also safer, and how that tension plays out uh, at 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 the to the person at the at the end of the chain is that that person then becomes the center of that conflict so you have a sales department that is pushing so so take the case of a passenger ship a sales department that is creating this beautiful calendars with 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 a passenger ship in the background of a beautiful port or a beautiful uh, 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 island and imagine uh, that picture where a passenger is buying the ticket of a passenger uh, or a cruise line the best and looking for the best cabin for the best for sightseeing right that's the marketing department wanting to sell the the the, the, the highest price ticket what you don't realize is that it has a lot of pressure on the navigation department or the safety department that is wanting to keep the ship at a safe distance from the the island now we all know that there are certain departments within the organization that are revenue earning, and then there are departments that are revenue spending. And we all know how the power structure plays between the two. So revenue earning department will always have an upper hand over revenue spending department, which is the safety department. So in the, in the power dynamics, then the safety department becomes less powerful. And as a result of which, the person who becomes or who embodies this conflict is the, the ship's captain. The captain is then carrying the conflict between keeping the ship, ship as, as a safe distance, but also giving passengers the satisfaction of seeing land from the, from the close. And that therein lies something very powerful, which is the notion of a professional. Now, in the Western world, there is a very narrow definition of what a professional is. A professional is somebody who diligently follows the instructions and procedures to, to their best abilities. And that is, the, that is a narrative that has been floated in the last 10, 20 years or so. But there is very little autonomy for that professional to actually exercise their, their judgment, the professional judgment to go outside. So when you are embodying that conflict within you, and you don't have the autonomy and discretion to actually navigate your, you have a sufficient bandwidth, it becomes a huge problem. Right. And that goes back to the notion of professionalism. What is professionalism? And I think this is something we need to think about that a professional is not somebody 
who is diligently following procedures, which is the Western idea of professionalism. A professional is person, a person who is navigating those conflicts day, and, day in and day out. That is something we need to respect, not just when that professional is producing success, but also occasionally when, he leads, when it leads to failure. And what sense do we make of that professionalism? And that's where it gets interesting because from, from hero, you become a villain on that particular day. So the boundaries between success and failure to define what a good and a bad professional is, is, is a very poor one, in my view. Yes. It, it's, it's um, you've got to look at the process, not the outcome, right? It is, I think, a different, uh, you, you have to be oriented to how this person, and that's a lot harder to observe, right? And when the outcome goes bad, people are outraged and you need to, you know, you, you, there is, there is a, a kind of human need to reassert control. Uh, to, to tie back to what, what you shared before. Um, so, Nipin, I'm also aware of the time. This has been just a delightful conversation. Um, no, it's been, it's been nice talking to you, Chris. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.